0: Monty, Cyril, Frankel, Dennis puna three expectant faces at the other end of the table. I picked up the napkin I'd discarded when I went for a walk and wrote on it. I, Peter Wingard, of sound mind and health, do hereby agree to be in your, at present name, television series, Department S. P.S. Nod if you accept. Signed Peter Wingard. I rolled up the napkin neatly like a parchment and asked the cast to pass it along to my prospective producer. Monty read it, smiled, passed it to Cyril, who passed it to Dennis. They all nodded like three monkeys, and that's how I started work on this series.
1: And welcome to another edition of ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Hello, guys. Evening, Jazz. Hi, Jazz. As you've probably guessed from the music you've heard at the start of this, we're talking about the series Department S in this podcast. Now, just as a brief introduction, Department S starred Peter Wingard as Jason King, Joel Fabiani as Stuart Sullivan, Rosemary Nichols as Annabelle Hurst, and a fourth lead is played by Dennis Alabar Peters, who played Sir Curtis Saretsi. There were 28 episodes. The series was produced by Monty Berman and created by Dennis Spooner. It was made in 1968, stroke 69, and filmed at Elstree Studios back to back with Randall and Hopkirk, deceased, to save some money and to appeal to Lou grade. So that's a little bit of background for you, in case you didn't know, but I'm assuming you all did. So we're going to delve right into the start and crux of the matter here and talk about the development of the series. And we've been very lucky in this podcast to be lent a copy of the original writer's bible dan box i must say thanks a lot for this because this is a fascinating document that you have allowed us to use and it talks about the development of the individual cast members as in the characters it's got a brief for writers to follow three scenarios at the start, one of which became the episode Blackout, so I'm assuming that was already written by the time this Bible was given out to writers. It's a really, really interesting document that gets to the real crux of the matter here, which is the kind of introductions to the episodes, the Mary Celeste-type scenarios at the beginning. But also what's fascinating about it is that the original lead character was going to be an oxford don and his name was robert cullingford and the development of this is really quite fascinating because obviously peter wingard when he was cast him agreeing to do it was that he wanted to develop the character himself and that's a real interesting part of this document this is i was going to say there's cullingford and Cummingford in the document He's called uh-huh. Cullingford, but in the script that I have, the original draft script that is for Blackout, which is called Turtle in the Shell, by Philip Broadley, he's called Cummingford. So I think there's probably a mix-up there with oh, no. uh, Broadley getting his names mixed up. I can't imagine
2: this show with the Oxford don simply because you know I've been sitting there watching and rewatching. 28 episodes where we've got this sort of um, very, very different writer of substandard 007 novels. And it's such a brilliant integral part of each of the stories and a running leitmotif each week. It's hard to imagine how it would have worked in another way, isn't it?
3: I think it would have been very, very different, a lot more dry. What I love about the writer's document is because we got this late on and I've been sitting there watching them back to back and analysing them. I could see clearly from the patterns I'd identified in analysing the shows how closely they stuck to the brief because, you know, you've got things like the three-act play, which it is always for ITC, but then in the third act They ask for an additional sort of drop and lift where they can put in the additional American advertising break. If you watch the series closely or watch it intensely as we have between 35 and 42 minutes, there's always a change there. Uh, And it, it does mean to some extent that sometimes the last 10 minutes sort of rattles along to get everything in and tie up as many knots as they can but it's just so interesting how much of the brief is actually reflected in the show. They stayed fairly well on key with it, I think.
1: Yes, and I'm going to pick you up on that as well, because way back in 1997, I did a, a magazine on Department S as part of my series of magazines, The Morning After, and I did a Department S special, and I watched all the episodes then, and in my notes there, I'd made some. In the actual magazine, I'd said there seems to be some sort of animosity between the Jason King character and Annabelle Hurst, but also there seems to be hinted at a relationship somewhere between Annabelle Hurst and Stuart Sullivan. And lo and behold, in this writer's document, there are two things that are given in the brief to the writers to, if they want to add those bits into the storylines, they can. So Mm -hmm. as you say, the things we've seen over the years that we've noted and been made aware of are there in this document that we've been given this week, which just goes to show that, like you say, the writers did stick pretty close to what they were given. I, I found that fascinating, really.
3: To me, when we started talking about this, I thought the average episode of Department S is, for want of a better phrase, only as good as the intrigue the Marie Celeste mysteries and the intrigues and how they hold together. And and again, this is what it says in the brief, we're looking for a mystery. The longer it can last, the better. And I think that the show revolves around, I think a lot of us who remember the show from transmission, we think of the intrigues first. It's the hooks, the intrigues that are the most memorable things about the programme to an
2: extent. I think this is also partly the structure of how the writers went about. I mean, I know obviously from having... A dad who was a script writer that the teaser on a lot of shows is the last thing you write you've written the whole story and then you go back and decide which elements to sort of tease quite literally the viewer with here i'm pretty sure that it's that mary celeste hook that they begin with mm. and so it, in a way that that makes it quite a different journey i would have thought for the writers and department there.
3: Yeah, I would think that makes it very, very difficult to come up with that sort of novelty and then work it through, because on average, you're looking at like the 35, 40 minute mark before most of the intrigues really break. So that's a a long time to sustain something. I think as we develop, we move slightly away from the writer's brief in that the writer's brief said, not necessarily, not essentially, to let the Cullingford, Cummingford, jason king character provide the resolutions he's there to have that stimulus of imagination but he's an easy get out he's like the sonic screwdriver in doctor who suddenly ping everything solved and jason comes out with a theory and they do tend to drift away from that and, and rely more upon him as the series progresses i think you do need that sort of off the wall imagination i suppose but and yes people do remember fundamentally jason king but i would put my head on the block here and say, I think this is possibly the most effective three-hander of the ITC period that they come up with because, yes, Jason is a core to the show and, yes, Jason does often provide the solutions. But And I think the other two, well, I think the three of them all bring something to the party. If you look at the scripts, if you look at the episodes, they interlock pretty well.
2: The key to the success of the trio, I think, unlike, let's say, Strange Report. And there were two shows, I think, at the end of the sixes that have got the most sort of connective tissue. In Strange Report, when we were looking at that, we said, you know, one of the problems with Anique Wills' character is she doesn't really have a proper defined role. Often she's there to make the tea or an apple pie or whatever. Here, there are specific roles for all three of those characters. You know, one is, is the professional doing their legwork, as Stuart Sullivan often says in the show. One is the computer analyst and expert. And one, as we said, is person who's going to make, well, according to Annabel Hurst, the wild guesses, but they're often inspired wild guesses. And I think that it was a brilliant idea to give them those three very different but defined roles because it means that you're not going to get many episodes where one of them is marginalised.
3: Ultimately, in a story like Death on Reflection, all four of them come into the action part of the plot.
1: Yeah, and we should mention there about Dennis Alibar Peters as Sir Curtis Soretzi. He's in charge of the department. And we should say that Department S is, is part of Interpol in the series. As you say, he does get involved occasionally. I know a lot of people seem to think he's a bit of a spare part and he's only there really to sort of feed Sullivan a little bit of an idea of where to go next. But I think it was a brave move on the part of Monty and Dennis Spooner to cast a black actor as the leader. That's quite a brave and unusual move for the time, if we think about it. It's interesting that the show
3: starts to develop before he comes in. He he probably comes in about four or five scripts in. It makes you curious as to what was the decision. I like the decision. I think it's, it's a brilliant thing to put a black actor front and center. But it does make me wonder what wasn't clicking within the scripts to need a sort of linchpin. And and then again, when you look at the early scripts, there's such a changing message of who is actually in control here. Is it Sullivan's department? Is it Sir Curtis department? Is it Sullivan with an overview by? And that develops as we go along. But initially you start to wonder in their various little encounters, where do they link together? But I would love to know the production logic of why suddenly four or five episodes in, we decide we need a central lead character Mm -hmm.
1: like that. The draft script I have for Turtle in the Shell, like I said, that became Blackout. He's not in that script at all, Mm -hmm. but he's been added in to Blackout. So as you say, something's happened in the production office where they decide that they need this additional character to sort of glue, almost like it feels like he's gluing bits together for the team he's also creating conflict at times isn't
2: he I mean we've got quite a few episodes where he and Stuart Sullivan are in open conflict I mean Sullivan actually says at one point I'm going to resign if you don't actually you know let me do this and so although I completely agree with both of you it's exciting to have a black actor in this role he's also establishment role And even though there are times when he will stick up for Department S, he says in one episode, we don't do murder in Department S. There are also times when he forces the others to go with the establishment, perfect operation being perfect example.
3: Yes, perfect operation and the other one where we get the direct involvement with MI5. You're right, he is very much hand in glove with the powers that be, and when we got that nice little scene between Sullivan and Sir Curtis as they leave at the end of the episode, and they have quite a conflicted conversation in the back of the car, and yeah, he's definitely, in that respect, not rocking the boat.
1: There are two, there's The Perfect Operation and Duplicated Man, where MI5 are involved and Basil Dignam plays the head of MI5, the same character in the same two episodes. And I mean, small war of nerves as well, I
2: would throw in there, because again, it's an episode where the establishment are quite happy to have the Anthony Hopkins character bumped off. Mm. I mean, that's the episode, in fact, where Sir Curtis does stand up and say, you know, we don't do murder if we're going to be involved in this. But I mean, if we're sort of talking about the central characters, it strikes me with Stuart Sullivan that I think he's at his best when we see slightly meaner, rougher edge to him. And when he's allowed off the leash, he's very good at doing that. He does it with with Sue Lloyd's character in one of the episodes. And also he does in, in the cellar episode. And when we see that slightly rougher edges to him, I think he becomes a far more three-dimensional, exciting character.
3: I I would agree with that. I mean, you've got essentially Jason King as a sub, Ian Fleming, and and at times you've almost got Stuart Sullivan as the um, personification of his hero, the low-rent James Bond.
1: And we should talk about Rosemary Nichols as well there because this is ITC's format of two male leads and a female lead that had come in, really, I suppose, with The Champions and then progressed with Randall and Hopkirk and Strange Report, ended up with a show like The Protectors. I think you're right there, Smudge, as well, where you say they all bring something to this because she does get a lot more to do in this series than, say, Annika Wills does in Strange Report. And more power to her, really, because I think she does really well in this show she gets some really good scenes with guest actors in particular. I'm thinking of the scene in the man in the elegant room where the guy who's been found in the room is, he kind of cuddles her and he's, he's panicking her and her reaction there was brilliant. I thought, Uh, but also like where she's against Kieran Moore, I think she does really well and a a number of episodes. I think that she gets a bit of a, a rough ride with some people saying, oh, you know, she's, just there for a bit of skirt, but actually, I think she's a lot more than that in this series.
3: I think you've identified two absolutely classic sequences there in Elegant Room, and both of them fundamentally non-verbal. It's acting that you can feel through the screen, basically, that the tension when um, the character in Elegant Room is try- is sort of half cuddling her. It's that sort of frustration and desperation of him trying to reach that sort of human contact, you can see that she knows if she reacts badly, she's going to blow this. And that the literal physical tension in there, that is a nice piece of acting. And again, dead men die twice. I mean, her scenes with Kieran Moore, they're all about relationship. So much of it is built on silence. You've got to believe you're in that character's head and, you, and you're feeling that tension you're feeling those emotions and things. And I think she conveys that brilliantly. And on the other side of the coin, she does a heck of a lot in some of the action sequences as well. She's far more fortunate than Annika Wills was in Strange Report because she can actually sort of get in there and mix it.
2: An awful lot of that, though, is off camera. It will, and I wonder why that is. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, probably one of the best female baddies in the whole run is Fiona Lewis's Lisa Crane. And she's a black belt at karate. And actually, Annabelle Hurst deals with her at the Deserted Country Club, but we don't see it. It's off camera. And um, I don't know whether that was because they didn't want it to look, you know, like a Tara King Avengers thing. Uh, and yet she's quite clearly able to deal with people as she proves with Alan Lake's character when she makes short thrift of getting him out of the car when she's in a very difficult situation. So a, a lot of the action as in, as in the fighting action, clearly mm-hmm. she's able to do some of that, but we don't see very much of that, do we? Do
1: see a little bit of it in Last Train to Redbridge. Also, with the Toby Robbins character in Man in the Elegant Room, towards the end, you do see a bit of that. But you're quite right, Rodney. A lot of it is implied. But I mean,
3: whilst she doesn't get into perhaps the more physical side of the action, she does get into activity pertinent to the plot, like searching yeah. the garage and that sort of thing in the autocam episode she's not just sitting there with the data checking stuff she she actually gets out in the field that's what i mean yeah
2: she's not hived off at all i mean comparing it to those other late 60s shows obviously randall and hopkirk and that andre's got to be hived off because she can't even see the ghost as i say i think they should have found something for anique wills to do they should have found her a more defined role and and they get it absolutely right here so as I say, it is very much a genuine trio. I still think Sir Curtis is, is the fourth member. I don't think it is a, a lead four parts for me, even if his name appears on the titles. I think he is there to support those three characters, but they are a genuine trio. They're, it's not two plus a decorative woman. Her role is integral to all the stories.
1: I really wanted to mention here was just how brilliant I think the opening credits and music are for this series I think this is the best ITC color titles and music of the 60s I mean the music's up tempo and it's rousing and when it's married with those really colorful graphics like you've got areas that are turning red and blue and yellow all within the same frame it's really psychedelic it's kind of bang on the nail in terms of the era and period and it's fast moving as well you know like you've got the computer tapes moving and all of that i think there's just a perfect title sequence and title theme i'd I'd go even
2: further i'm gonna upset you now by saying Mm. i think it's better than any of the 70s ones (laughs) i mean yes it doesn't give you the backstory in the way that the persuaders and the zoo gang you know both great titles particularly the persuaders does but I think just in terms of visual effect, I think it's unparalleled. I mean, I'm sure a lot would have been lost on the original viewer, as most people would have been watching in black and white. But um, I just think it looks fantastic. And even watching all 28 episodes twice in a space of a month, I didn't actually get bored with those titles. I just love the passing of the dossier. and And actually, even just that S on its own, it's quite iconic, isn't it?
3: There's that dynamism to both the animation sequence and the music and they just set you up so nicely for what you're gonna get in the next hour.
1: I was just gonna say as well about those titles. The introduction to the episodes is another part of this whole thing at the start of the episode. I really like where you kind of you get the name, date, place thing. And a little sort of parallel with Strange Report, in that with Strange Report, you got the number.
2: Mm. So again, you feel as if we're looking at just some of their many investigations and in both shows, I love that idea.
3: Within the series, you get little hints like how was Singapore or how's the Zurich affair going? So so we're told sort of off screen, they're still having other adventures that we're not seeing.
2: And sometimes lovely parallels in that, as you're saying, Smudge, between the characters. So in the one episode, we know that Stuart Sullivan is on his way back from the jungle in Bogota. And then we have Jason pretending he's in the sort of Amazon jungle for this really cheesy sort of promo for his novel. I love those sort of little playful parallels.
3: We could have had a very, very different trio. The original intention with the Cullingford, Cummingford character, initial approaches or sounding out was made of Kenneth Moore If you can imagine how different that would have been. An alternative for Stuart Sullivan was given as Michael Billington from UFO. And as we've discussed while we've been leading up to this uh, recording, Kate O'Mara mentions in her memoirs and in interview that she was offered the role of Annabelle Hurst. Kenneth Moore was getting back to sort of Rodney's thing about establishment figures. Kenneth Moore was very much an establishment figure. He was that sort of square jawed, stiff upper lip type actor from many, many movies mm. in the 40s and 50s. Rather staid and very straight up and straight down. I would have been surprised if he would have even considered such a role, to be honest.
2: He's Douglas Bader. He's not Jason King, is he? To me, when I watched Department S, Peter Wingard is the whiskey. He's the really strong element. And he requires the other characters that are tonic to dilute him. Without them, he would have almost been out of
1: control. But you do need something really dynamic. Interesting now about Kenneth Moore, though, he's quite similar in a way in his background and acting to Anthony Quayle. So the character would have been quite similar, probably. To the quail character of Adam Strange, but yeah, I can't see him in the role of leading this kind of trio at all. I don't think that Lou would have gone with Billington, though, personally, because he needed that American for his proposed network U.S. sale, which obviously didn't happen. But that was the thing that if we go to the champions, we've got Stuart Damon, we've got Richard Bradford, we've got Steve Forrest, we've got, uh, and we've got Craig Stevens. We've got this thing where Lou has to get a US actor in. So I think the Billington thing, although mentioned, like you say, I think it's in the documentary, isn't it? I think that Lou would have just said no to that. I need a I need an American actor, which is interesting because Joel Fabiani, his, uh, what had he done before? Again, he's one of these ITC actors, American actors that Lou finds that hasn't done that much really before, has he? I think we said on the Man of the World podcast. I mean, Craig
2: Stevens is the only one who would have been a name in the States. I mean, Richard Bradford had a relatively modest part in one film. That wouldn't have been enough. Stuart Damon would have been an unknown. He'd have been better known in Britain at the time than he was in the States. Joel Fabiani wouldn't sell a series, would he? And of course, ironically, the Americans, what they loved was Peter Wingard and his outfits, didn't they? That was what really attracted him in the end wasn't it contrary to what everybody thought they thought he wouldn't go down too well in conservative america but uh, joel came
3: in essentially on the back of a cigarette commercial he'd done where again to bring it into context with the show he'd been a sort of sub james bond figure can, can i
2: say one thing about peter wingard's character yeah. it always strikes me that there is an inconsistency in the character which obviously is not the actor's fault but he is An oscar wilde type character he compares himself to oscar wilde Mm. jason king he's even going to go on a book tour that's going to replicate the one that wilde went on and he says i think it's in um, the pied piper episode whenever i feel the urge to exercise i sit down until it passes and there is this idea that his idea of being active is being active with a whole range of very exciting women and yet at the same time in a number of the episodes he's seen doing things like skiing, tobogganing, all sorts of sort of action hero type things. That never sits very comfortably with me with the other part of him that doesn't like fighting and violence and danger, and would rather sit there with a glass of brandy and a beautiful woman.
3: These are formulaic things within the scripts. There's two elements. There's the weekly meeting with Sir Curtis, and there's the weekly, where is Jason now? I do despair at Peter Wingard standing there in front of a cyclorama at Elstree with somebody throwing pieces of polystyrene and salt at him to pretend he's skiing. Absolutely diabolical.
1: Yeah, the worst one for me has to be the one where he's marlin fishing, which is just (laughs) appalling. But you're right, they're there literally every week. And they seem insequential to the plot. There are literally Mm. just like a two-minute sort of filler of time. And what he tends to do doesn't ever seem to come back into the flow of the story. I found
2: even more watching him the second time around, you can't help but warm to him as an actor and to the character. Okay, there's something roguish about him. You know, he is a bit of a sort of a, a voyeur at times, looking at women through his, his sort of various types of glasses. But there is something rather lovable about the character.
3: I agree with you. Much as I perhaps didn't want to, I did sort of come back to Jason King in recent years the stuff we've heard about Wingard, the stuff we've read about Wingard, it's changed the complexion for me a bit. But as you say, there is a sort of irresistibility to the character.
1: To be honest, you both know very well that I actually knew him for about 15 years towards the end of his life very, very well. You know, I'd go and have meals with him and do DVD commentaries and do all these things with him. And he, he was a an interesting man and i listened to the dvd commentary i did with him um again for this on pi piper of hamilton and just listening to him I, it made me think yeah there was a real fun element in part to peter but he was also a very complicated person in real life and i'm not going to go into any of that because that's not for me to say on air
2: and we've said before isn't this integral to all of the itc shows at work that we've got someone who's either a bit of a maverick, or certainly someone who has to have screen presence. I mean, Patrick Mm -hmm. McGowan, Driving Danger Man, the same with Roger Moore, with the Saint, Richard Bradford, and obviously then Moore and Curtis with the Persuaders. We're talking about people with genuine screen presence. And Mm -hmm. Peter Wingard has that. And that's the one quality that the other two require from him that when he's on screen, we are gravitating towards him, aren't we?
3: You've got to have strength to carry a series on the other side of that coin. There are the occasional tales of the sort of prima donna behaviour on set, not coming on set until his hair was done, trying to take liberties with certain directors. You've got to balance that out. And and was it a price worth paying?
2: But that's no different than Tony Curtis was in The Persuaders or Richard Mm -hmm. Bradford was in Men in a Suitcase. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there are stories with them as well, aren't there? Mm -hmm. In a sense, if you're going to take on someone quite powerful and dynamic, you take on a bit of the devilry as well, I would throw that in maybe. One has to mention his voice. He has a voice of velvet. And I saw him literally at a sort of convention a year maybe before he passed away. And he hadn't lost any of that voice. Physically, there wasn't much of him left. But the minute he spoke, you could be back in The Prisoner or Department S or whatever show he's performed in. And that voice
1: is just wonderful, I think. I was going to say, you're so right there, because that's exactly what I thought when I listened to that DVD commentary. I thought, my God, I count myself lucky that we did that because actually, troubled as he was, he was magnificent that day. It came across in the commentary. The Mark Cain stories are always brilliant, I think, in this show. Some of them are slightly funny, some of them are slightly sad. And the way he delivers them, like you say, with his voice, it's just absolutely magical, isn't it? And they work both ways, don't
2: they? In that sometimes he'll draw on something from a Mark Cain novel and say, oh, well, of course, you know, maybe, but sometimes it works the other way. So I think it's in the Trojan tanker when he says at the end, I'm publishing this as a Mark Cain novel, but I'm making it a one-hander rather than a three-hander.
3: It's good as the series develops that that sort of occasional pomposity that he brings the Mark Cain quotes in with is sometimes burst, like in Soup of the Day when David Healy in a brilliant piece of Against Type Casting just rips into him and says Mark Cain is a load of old rubbish.
1: There's also one where he's in Paris having his photo taken for the next Mark Cain publicity thing, and the girl photographer gives him a real hard time about Mark Kane. There's also the one with Gene Marsh in where Gene Marsh is not a fan of his.
3: That's a lovely line to think I might have saved the world from Mark Kane. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, she wants, she wants to measure a good book by the IQ of the reader. He wants to measure it by sales. It's the nice sort of, again, sort of almost self-referential thing, isn't it? I think that's a lovely running leitmotif in the show. And again, it does actually fit in with a lot of the sets and a lot of the plots in that there is a, an extra sort of artificial layer to it, whether it's a sort of um, a pretend plane set or it's a, a room that isn't really a room. And here, I, you know, as I say, I think the Mark Kane ideas fit in and sometimes the titles of the books are hilarious i think i said mm. as much the other day i'd give another star to the one episode where it's from china you will sincerely rather than from russia with love i just think that's fun bearing in mind this isn't that long after the james bond franchise has been launched in what 1962 we're only a few years later on mm-hmm. and so there is a sort of a little wink at what's going on on the big screen as well isn't there
3: In total trivia, in terms of production values, the different Mark Kane books that you see, they are fun. But when they started out, they hadn't got a handle on the Mark Kane books. And the first few books you see are actually a book on tenants and housing with a different cover and photograph put on them.
1: I'm so sad I've got a list of them. So we've got Index Finger Left Hand, which is actually seen on screen and mentioned. Dead Dames Don't. We've got Vote for Kane, Epilogue to Hong Kong. People in Glass Houses Shouldn't, Don't Look Now But Your Clutch Is Slipping, that's the yeah. dialogue, Identity Mark Cain, Enough Is Enough Is Enough Is Enough, An Amazon For Me, The Lady Is Willing, Istanbul Iliad, The Return of Mark Cain, and that's as far as I got. It's nice that in the one
2: episode when Sir Curtis and Stuart Sullivan meet, they're meeting in a bookstore, and there is a promotion of Mark Cain's novels and a, and a photograph of him. And it's almost like even when he's not there, he is there, sort
3: of. It's brilliant in that scene when they meet in Paris, as you mentioned, because everything on that rotator is Mark Kane.
2: And, of (laughs) course, Sir Curtis is a big fan. I mean, he actually says the writing is really very good.
1: I suppose we should mention about this being made back-to-back with Randall and Hopkirk, which obviously meant that The two series shared sets, cars. I mean, Marty's Mini turns up in one episode of Department S and Jeff Randall's cars in at least four or five that I was counting. And Stuart Sullivan's car appears in Randall and Hopkirk in return. But it's Monty doing his usual thing on the cheap making things attractive to Lube, as cheap as possible, two series for the price of one. But I do think we get some benefits there because the casting of Dudley Sutton and Norman Ashley in Mm. Handicapped Dead as those two villains, and then they Mm. went on and were in a Randall and Hopkirk episode as very similar characters, that's a plus point.
4: I suppose
2: it's a big difference between when Baker was with Berman, isn't it? Because they obviously were doing back-to-back The Saint and Gideon's Way And there's no shortcuts taken with either of those shows. I mean, there is quite a lot of Elstree backlot. I don't think it impinges in the way that is the case with the Baron. In a weird way, I think that the things that Monty Berman does very well also highlights the things he does very badly. (laughs) So on the one hand, the stock footage is brilliant. I can't Mm -hmm. think of another ITC show with better stock footage. And yet the minute you feel you're in the south of France or Rome or wherever, we've got this, I think, what I described as a sort of anemic concrete beach. And I guess all of these things are highlighted by Blu-ray. It wouldn't have looked as bad, you know, watching it on a small TV in black and white. But when the stock footage is so good, does it not have a knock-on effect to the things that look a little bit tinny afterwards? It comes back
3: to the thing we've said throughout these podcasts. You use black and white for realism. Colour can't disguise the artificial nature of what you're doing. And like you say, the stock plates are really, really high quality and it does show out in Blu-ray. And then you come to these clunking sets. You're talking in terms of production values that are fairly cheap. This is one thing that's driven me mad watching them back to back. You see the same props turning up again and again. You see the same pictures again and again. They've got a stock system of sets there's the standing set for the Interpol HQ of Department S, but there are other sets that are I'm sure left standing to be redressed like the staircase that staircase must have been used for the insert shots of Sir Curtis if you notice in episode one where they meet Sir Curtis they're in the staircase Mm -hmm. set the single color walls drove me mad it looks cheap Mm -hmm. you can see where they've just slapped a coat of paint on a flat and they've hung a picture set dressing standards for the most part are nowhere near the other
1: ITC shows. Just a point about the L Street backlot. I think they used it quite subtly in this, to be mm. fair, in terms of the backlot town. There's not too much of that backlot town compared to, say, the Baron. What they did use was that road with the mound and there's the trees. That right-angled staircase set, I mean I made a note of it every episode I saw and it's like literally it was virtually in every episode Mm. so like you say I do think that was probably standing and just redressed every time the jogging scene in the park is the worst of the whole lot I mean it's
4: it's
2: the worst thing I've ever seen in a tv series simply because it wasn't necessary I mean you Mm. get that opening shot of two guys that are jogging in a park they could have just Stop something address. like that.
3: Long shot or whatever. This is the thing about the Sir Curtis meetings. I mean, I compare them to when McNear used to meet Mother in odd
1: locations in the Avengers. Why do they do this? The back projection in this series is probably Monty's cheapest mm. attempt at doing it and the worst, and some of the continuity as well. That scene, I think, is notorious amongst ITC fans as probably being the worst back projection scene ever. I think it's probably because that the movement of the camera and them moving at the same time, as well as the back projection, it just looks, I hate to say it, it looks like a 15-year-old who's just got a camera and is having his first go at making a film. It's that yeah. bad. But some of the other ones, I mean, there's one where they meet on a boat on the Seine in Paris, and that is equally as cheap and nasty looking, which is a real yeah. shame because, um, and obviously it's highlighted a lot with these spectacular Blu-rays that have come out from Network. They do look glorious, but obviously they're highlighting the flaws of which, you know, the back projection is one of them. But also mm. the other one that I was going to say is the use of doubles. And my God, Peter Wingard mm. suddenly, like, goes from being let's say he's six foot or whatever, he seems to go to about four foot 11 and become very fat. Um, <laughs> he does. And the double for Annabelle Hurst is not so bad for Rosemary Nichols, but even Stuart Sullivan one, he's it really stocky. And like you look at him, you think, like, God blimey, he looks like a rugby scrum half or something.
2: Even with the guest characters, I mean, Dudley Sutton, who has this huge, wonderful shock of hair, and he's almost bald, a double. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on there? I'm sure that could have been avoided by just looking at feet and other things. It's not that complicated to get those things right. One of the things I think where the Blu-ray is absolutely wonderful is I think their outfits are fabulous. And Mr. Sullivan, he doesn't have such a wide wardrobe. He's often with that slightly checkered suit. But Peter Wingard, who Robert Sellers says in his book that never had late 60s fashion been so disastrously exhibited. I think a lot of his outfits in 2021
1: look fabulous. Talking of the wardrobe, I mean, Annabelle Hurst's wardrobe's great as well, I think, in this. So many of the times you see the ladies in ITC getting a bit of a raw deal, but actually she gets some nice outfits to wear and Mm -hmm. she looks great. She looks late mod. I love her short black hair. Her styling was really well done as, as well as Jason King's. Mm. Yeah, no, no,
2: they are fabulous, and there are some really bright colours. There's one of the episodes, it might even be the first one, where she's at that sort of function with um, Sir Curtis, and she's wearing this purple outfit, and it's absolutely superb. And she's got quite a few green suits that she wears. And no, I think she looks excellent. Dare we mention wigs? I mean, I, I don't know if Peter wears the wig
3: in these, but and again, to compliment Rosemary's look, they have an assortment of hairpieces and they make her look just fabulous six days when she gets caught by the air stewardess comes out in the long blonde wig whatever you may think of rose i mean she looks absolutely stunning but i'd love to know where she got the wig from
1: what i love about that is when she gets back into the car she's still wearing it and jason king says to her god christ i thought someone was trying to pick me up (laughs) lovely line The reuse of sets is something that I wanted to get to because this is another one of Monty's things where in The Champions he got like the jungle set used three times for three episodes and he got the submarine set. In this one, we get the airplane set used at least three times. You know, we've got Mm -hmm. one of our aircraft is empty. We've got six days. We've got the mysterious man in the flying machine. This is one of Monty's cost-cutting things again where he's identified a set and said, right, We've used it in one, go and write it in another two.
3: But to bring that right back to where we started from, that is just the guys keeping to the writer's brief because it says in the writer's brief, we must get as many days' work out of a set that we can. It's essentially as if you're going to bring the writers in, you're going to show them these sets and say, I've got X, Y and Z set, write me a script. And I'm sure that must have happened at some point.
2: With that final sort of plain one, I actually think it works wonderfully well when you suddenly realize that this guy is running out of this what is a set within a set, and then he's shot. And I think that is probably one of the better of those sort of Marie Celeste teasers, because at that point we have absolutely no clue what is going on. Is it something being filmed? Is it some sort of practice or something? It's so bizarre. I rather like that
3: just a little fun note about the cheapness of the production if you follow the series through you'll spot certain things like there's a picture of venice and mark square there's a pifco pink desk lamp which at one stage literally in one episode will appear in the department s office and then in another scene a couple of scenes later it'll appear in the villain's office or somebody else's office there's a huge golden cockerel inkstand that makes several appearances But the one thing I noticed, if you've got the Blu-rays, I think it's that's train at Redbridge when she's searching Draper's desk. As she's going through the desk, she lifts up a sort of stone pigeon paperweight thing. And if you freeze the frame and do it slowly, you will notice it says on the bottom ITC 609. So they clearly had their own prop store. And the final piece of trivia is something a bit more interesting, I hope. The centre clipping of the title credits refers to a bank robbery which actually took place in Hove in the 60s just before the series was done. And it was a bunch of characters robbed a bank dressed in bizarre gear. Nobody did anything because they thought it was a student rag. Now, if you look at that and you look at the start of Cellar Full of Silence, it does make you wonder.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say about those paintings, the car paintings as a series of cars there's abstract art. So you're quite right where they seem to be a limited number of props that just appear in all the same thing. There's the Madonna painting that's key to one of the episodes that turns up on the wall in various apartments as well. Not many props, I would say, sadly. What I would say is there are some sets where they've spent some money and those props do look good because the set for the Duke of Cumberland... In the Pied Piper, that pub set I thought was really great actually. That was really well dressed. I don't know if it was because it was right at the start of production, and maybe the money was there was more money in the pot, and maybe it was Roy Wall Baker as director. It's the only episode he directed, and it's location heavy as well. That episode is another reason that I really like it. Maybe he was just not that's not dressed well enough. He was a man of high standards.
3: You occasionally get better dressed sets. I mean, I love the antique shop in The Duplicated Man to sort of counter the, the thing about cheapness. For that one small scene when the Russians are coming into the shop, behind them, you've got that gorgeously painted backcloth of the shop across the road. And that doesn't look like the cheap style we're used to in the slightest.
2: Some of the guest characters' apartments, I think, are really good sets, as the lovely artist's flat in The Man in the Elegant Room, where Jason King almost gets bumped off and manages to talk his way out of it. Mm. And that's a wonderful, vibrant set. And you can imagine an artist living in that sort of apartment. And there are Mm. some beautifully bright, sort of almost psychedelic
1: late 60s sets. That is a great set. And what I really like about that is they've got little maquettes of the actual studio room, you know, which is a really nice little touch. And actually a bit like that aircraft teaser, I really like the fact you see that room within a sort of studio thing. You know, it's letting us into a little bit of a another part of that world, isn't it?
3: And there's that nice scene at the end of Elegant Room where you actually see the set being struck. And again, it's that little bit of insider information. But what I am consistently surprised by is the quality of the backcloths. Some of the backcloths they've taken time and trouble for and they don't reflect cheap. If you think mm. about duplicated man. When it comes to the airport, there's a wonderful sort of panoramic backcloth that they've really taken time and trouble with to make it look like an airport in work. Some of the aeroplane episodes, they've not just put the backcloth by the door. You can see the backcloth through all the windows. Those are quite individual things which go completely against that principle of making things quickly and cheaply. <laughs>
1: Want to talk about some of the killings in this series because I think that Department S is often seen as this almost police spice drama type thing, you know. And often people think of Jason King and sort of character that they send up and stuff. But actually, when you watch these, there are some very dark themes to this series. The number of killings of women, in particular, some shot at point blank range, but also. Th- Something like the perfect operation where it becomes almost like state murder, where Mm. the man who's controlling MI5 is quite happy for the patient to die during the operation because he's basically a double agent. This isn't all lighthearted stuff at all.
2: He goes a stage further, doesn't he, in that episode? It's not simply that he's happy for him to die. Basically, the surgeon has been ordered to make sure Mm. he doesn't come through it. And, you know, one has got that in at least three of the episodes where the authorities are quite happy to press the green light for that. But we've also got a lot of dark villains who enjoy killing. It struck me both times I watched it and I felt guilty because I slagged off Clinton Grain's acting in in The Zoo Gang. And he's so good as that sort of Gerard. He inspects his hands before each killing. He's almost admiring his sort of handiwork. And there are a lot of characters like that. I think it was David Sumner who plays the character called Wolf. And mm. he almost has to be restrained because he's, he just loves, loves that. Dudley Sutton, we mentioned earlier and his sort of um, cohort and the way they get the character drunk and almost force him basically out the window of a high rise building. There are some mm. very, very dark moments, aren't there?
3: If you look at Cellar Full of Silence, there's that beautifully staged sequence where we juxtaposition the slaughter in the cellar with the noises of the building site to disguise Mm. the shots. It is just guys in front of a machine gun and you've got some sort of novel killings that aren't intended to be killings, like the man who got a new face. I have to say that is the episode from childhood which stuck with me because I thought that was particularly horrific, the way the collie artist character dies. And there is a very, very sort of dark scene to this. As Rodney said earlier, you've got the intended rape of Annabelle in one episode and you've got several needless deaths. I mean, Last Train to Redbridge has got an absolutely and utterly bleak ending because
2: you've got a plot where everybody has died for no reason. That episode is even disturbing before the killings because you've got that young woman on the train and basically the man opposite is just trying to look up her dress and she's feeling more and more uncomfortable. And you've already got a quite unpleasant sense of the menace you might get as a woman on the underground before even the killings take place.
3: And the same episode, I think, is it Mrs Taylor? They drug her and abandon her in the street. She gets run run over. over. There's a hit and run in one of the aircraft episodes. But that is a really tough chase down in that story. Six and days, that
1: is. It's not all like this programme. And those people who kind of send it up, I think, have probably got their wires crossed. And I'm thinking of Jason King, which is obviously a lot lighter than, you know, the spin-off series. There quite a lot of gallows humour as well, isn't
2: there, around deaths? I mean, I'm thinking of In A Ticket to Nowhere. And Stuart Sullivan, who's sort of undercover, is complaining, oh, it's not been my week when he finds out that, that Blaine is dead. And Fiona Lewis's character says it wasn't exactly Mr Blaine's either. Sometimes the humour comes through the darkness. if we are sort of moving on to talking about episodes. Both times I watched A Small War of Nerves. This still probably sounds a bit strange, but I mean, we're used in ITC shows to seeing star guests. I'm thinking of someone like Donald Pleasance in Position of Trust, a Danger Man half hour episode, where he's absolutely brilliant. But it's still a shock to me seeing Anthony Hopkins, even a relatively young one in this show and, Unlike Donald Pleasance, who he doesn't quite have the screen presence of Patrick McGoon. It's just the way they're so brilliant together. Anthony Hopkins almost runs this episode. There are whole long scenes where it's just him in his bed sit. It's also beautifully directed. There isn't a huge amount of innovative direction in Department S. But that's an episode that I think really does have some. And I just thought... I believe that Hopkins really was this character who's been driven to the point of, you know, he's a pacifist and yet his job is creating monsters, isn't it? Small
3: War of Nerves is a standout episode. You've got Leslie Norman, he comes in, he directs this. You look at the teaser sequence, how little dialogue there is, how much he likes to let the camera do the work, he even attempts some decent lighting effects, which are quite scarce within department. And Leslie Norman is one of the most cinematic directors of the show. You've got him at the back end, and you've got Roy Ward-Baker at the front end with Pied Piper mm. of Hambledown, because there are so many beautiful cinematic sequences and shots in that. And Anthony Hopkins, he just knocks it out of the park. He surpasses any guest within the series, and he gives us the ultimate gift we actually see Peter Wingard being forced to act properly.
2: He takes Jason King's character to the next level in that this is an episode where Jason King is the one of the trio who is morally disgusted by what's going on. Mm. He says at one point, you know, isn't civilization wonderful? Mm. He, He finds the whole thing really, really quite repellent. And we don't tend to think of Jason King as being a moral character. We think of him a lot of the time as amoral. I won't say immoral, but amoral. And here, actually, he's the one who really just finds the whole
1: prospect terrifying. I was going to say with this one, this is where, for me, this series becomes a little bit like Gideon's Way in that it allows Anthony Hopkins to kind of carry the whole story Mm -hmm. himself. A bit like when we were talking to Jane Merrow about her and Ray Brooks carrying a lot of the story in that Gideon's Way episode. This is where you can't take your eyes off Annie Hopkins. And like you say, a lot of the time it's just him or him with like the Frederick Jaeger villain type character. He doesn't really come across Department S until he meets King. I think that's even better as well. And like you say, some of the direction is fabulous. And personally, for me, I think this is like the best episode. I love all the fact as well, that there's a, there's a mention of Salisbury, which is local to me. In 2003, I was lucky enough to do some audio commentaries with Peter Wingard, one of which was for A Small War of Nerves. Let's hear a bit of that now.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And this is Peter Wingard, The main attraction of this episode is, of course, Sir Anthony Hopkins. I thought the script had an interesting idea, and I discussed it with Leslie Norman, the director. He had made many successful films at the famous Ealing Studios. Uh, When I read A Small War of Nerves, I said, we must go for the best. Halliday has to carry the whole first and second part of the film, and the last confrontation scene requires an actor... And by that, I mean a a gifted actor who can find nuances and tempo to make the scene work. But above all, he must have a sensitivity so the audience can sympathize with his motive. Without the right actor, there was no film. If he had charisma as well, we got it made. And everybody agreed when I suggested Tony Hopkins. And he's superb in this, as he is in everything he does. He brings a wonderful sincerity, a quirky nervousness, and an enormous power, as always. That it makes you believe completely in the character he plays. English actors love to rehearse because, because of our theatre traditions, I suppose, and our training. So at the beginning of the series, I tried to get the cast together just to do this so as not to waste the time with the technicians who were about doing their personal and professional jobs. A sort of preliminary search of the best way to get the truth of a script, or as in some cases, inject more truth into it, uh, which the confines of television have robbed it of. And possibly, if possible, As much humour as possible. Actors <clears throat> are probably the most hard-working profession, and it was never difficult to ask them to rehearse, even out of their contractual times, except for Anthony Hopkins. When he arrived at the studios, I went to his dressing room first to welcome him, and then to discuss the script and ask him if there was anything he'd like to lose or a gain or whatever. It's called throwing it around until it becomes second nature, spontaneous. I knocked on his dressing room door. Nothing. I tried again. There was no answer. Again I tried it. Still no answer. I thought, well, maybe he's gone to the canteen or something. Then Frederick Yeager, who plays the villain, a wonderfully funny man, and kept us all in fits on the set, was in the dressing room next door, and I was about to knock on his door to welcome him when he came out and said, it's no good, he won't answer, we've all tried. We both looked puzzled, and to this day, I don't know why exactly, Tony Hopkins didn't respond to our knock. So the big scene between us at the end of the film was never rehearsed. It is completely spontaneous. And I think all the better for it. Tony taught me that for films, the whole point is getting the moment, the spontaneous moment. The French call it le mystère de moment. I call it good film acting. However, we did find or notice at least, a small empty half bottle of scotch a little way along the corridor.
1: I think standout episode alongside Pied Piper. I'd have Handicapped well, it, Dead up there. But, and Handicapped
2: um... Dead obviously is atypical, isn't it, in the uh... Actually, it's not a Department S, really, investigation. And there are a few of those. I mean, Stuart Sullivan Mm -hmm. is meant to be a golf fanatic, isn't he? And he just happens to be there at the tournament. But that is an episode that's got some wonderful sort of chilling scenes. And it captures that whole 60s thing in the cafe with the screaming Natchez score and all of that. And that's, to me, is quite a memorable episode as well. What well, is it about Pied Pipey
1: you particularly like, Jazz? I love the, the fact it's location heavy. I love Roy Ward Baker's directing. I think the whole premise of the plot, spoiler alert, you know, it's water, where the major character thinks he's got the ultimate weapon and he's prepared to use it. A similar kind of thing there with uh, the, the nerve gas from Small War of Nerves. But I just think the direction's great. I love the location. I like the way that it's been captured as well, the sort of blue light eeriness of the people in the suits. And when she wakes up first thing in the morning and she's wandering around that really picturesque British village, Latimer in Buckinghamshire it is. You know, I just think it captures it all. And the pub set was great. And Annabelle's got some little helpers. And I thought it was a well-scripted, well-paced. It didn't fail in any way for me. I mean, it's got a nice idea Mm -hmm. also that
2: here is a villain, the colonel, who actually is motivated by world peace. And you've got that sort of moral debate is that he thinks it's okay to have what he calls, I think, a confined killing if it's for the greater good, which is always an interesting moral dilemma, isn't
3: it? I just love the direction of that. I am so sad that Roy Ward Baker only did one. The opening sequence is cinematic. The intrigue is set up in a cinematic way. There are no great chunks of dialogue. And I love when you come to the next morning, he builds that feeling of isolation by sort of focusing on the day-to-day objects, the clock, the candles, and you, the radio. And you can feel that. What a coffee percolating.
2: You've got all of those things, haven't
3: you? It's marvellously done. I do like the fact that, as you said, Jazz Annabelle's got some assistance and... They're ladies, and we, and we get more of that. I mean, Annabelle is an early sort of advocate for girl power because we've got the other episode where she's got Janet Key as one of her assistants, mm. and, and all these ladies with analytical minds are working with the computers, and I think
2: that's wonderful. I did wonder one thing with that episode, and that is when they arrive to investigate, Stuart Sullivan brings in all of Annabelle Hurst's luggage, and it's four enormous red suitcases. Now, I mean, how long is she expecting to stay for?
3: Well, the real mystery is to explain how, in the 1960s, that little country pub has got such a good wine cellar that would satisfy Jason King. Death on Reflection, do we want to talk about that? Go for it, Smudge. I think it's a very, very good episode because it's a very Sir Curtis focused. We get to see him out in the field. It's got a wonderful villain in Guy Rolfe. Again, one of the better guest stars. And the direction actually works. There's some beautiful mirror shots in there.
2: And actually, they gives Sir Curtis some witty dialogue. He's not always given a huge amount of witty dialogue. And I mean, he arrives at that sort yeah. of mirror boutique run by that rather attractive sort of Comtesse Corinne, And he says that it's the perfect home for narcissists. <laughs> and he's probably already imagining Jason King admiring himself later on in it. I think it's nice when, as it were, the shopkeeper from Mr. Ben, which sort of Sir Curtis is in a way, is allowed out and can join in the adventure. I think that's
1: great. Another episode with a cold killing, though, isn't it? Because Mm. Eves, who is Guy Rolfe's character, kills the pop star. He's got basically a gun in his cane. He shoots him at point-blank range. No questions asked. You know, you bought the mirror. I want it. Bosh. I do think it's a great episode. And I love the fact that they're referencing Rembrandt hidden behind the mirrors. But again, it's another
2: example, isn't it, of where something dark, again, is used for humour because, as you said, he's got that gun in a stick. And yet at the end, when Corinne says Jason King, he says, I always wanted a shooting stick. They managed to turn even quite dark moments into
1: something that is humorous. Ray Austin directing it, and he'd obviously learned a lot from the Avengers on that.
3: What I love in there is this one little tiny, tiny tricksy shot where you've got Sir Curtis in the observation place when he's watching them and trying to warn them. And you've got a nice little framing of him within the shot. And you look and you think, oh, it's another mirror shot. And then you, you pull back and it's actually Sir Curtis framed by the stepladders. But the one thing I did think about on this one is in the ending, I think they should have just left it at Eve's last line and not had the guard lines afterwards. With Eve's last line, it would have been far more dramatic.
2: There are lots, particularly towards the end of the run, certainly in terms of the Blu-ray order, that I think are terrific. I mean, I like The Man from X, which, yeah, it does have some sort of quite ridiculous elements to it. I mean, I don't know why the baddies are wearing their space helmets in the van on the way to the job and things like that. But um, <laughs> I thought there were loads of fun things in there. I loved the liquid oxygen in Stuart Sullivan's con. In fact, he's just laughing and having hysterics about what's happened. You've got that great shake and shout dance club. I just thought it was a really fun, sort of slightly out there episode. Even a ridiculous silent fight among the frozen pig carcasses. I mean, I suppose it's an example of where Blu-ray doesn't do you any favours because they really do look like plastic pig carcasses. And I'm sure watching it originally, it wouldn't have seemed like that at
1: all. With that one, I liked Wingard when he became the guy who flew in from America. I thought he was really great in that. And there are some nice scenes of that, especially where the guy's holding that Tommy gun to his face. You know, the guy who suspects he's not really the safecracker. Of a Tony Selby Um, character. There's some nice nice interactions there. I was
3: sitting there thinking, I can't think whose portrayal of that character is worst. I think Peter's all teeth and whatever. and he, He seems a bit hammy to me. I'll I'll sort of go against you on that one, Jess, but I did like the final sequence with the plastic pigs and the the fights and whatever. I think that's really nicely staged and the music really suits the sequence and you've got that nice little effect of vacuum rush when they break through the wall.
2: Well, you've got that great scene where um, Jason King has to pretend that he's bumped off Annabelle Hurst. I I love that scene. because Actually, that's played pretty straight and it's quite a chilling moment.
3: It is, but of course, nobody checks to make sure she's dead. Yeah. I mean, I, would... I think
2: that's a Tony Williamson episode, isn't it? And it is. He is good with comedy. I've always thought he's very good at adding humour, and yet there's still the dramatic storyline
1: to it. Maybe because it's the Bible was so specific, but I think the writers deliver here. I think there are only a couple of episodes where I think are a bit, hmm. People like Philip Broadley who write in...
4: And well, Philip episode. Broadley, write,
1: yeah, he writes 10 episodes. Now, I
4: mean, mm.
2: he's someone who my father was great friends with Philip Broadley, and they worked on loads of shows together, mm. including Public Eye. And he was a big fan of Philip Broadley. Now, I've noticed on a lot of the blogs mm. online, Philip Broadley's scripts really get shredded to pieces as if he's a weak link. And I just don't see that. Watching and re-watching the show, I think an awful lot of his episodes, including the one we talked about a minute ago, Death on Reflection, I think he's written some great episodes in here i don't quite understand why some people had an issue with him on the show
1: no me neither and as you say tony williamson got a very strong track record of writing some great episodes
3: Spencer Bodley is a favourite of mine because I think in terms of what you've got in the brief of having an intrigue and maintaining an intrigue, this is possibly, arguably, the purest intrigue of the whole lot because we've got this young man in his 20s who is actually 60 in his real age. We've got all the sort of conundrums around that And it's a very sort of metaphysical concept for the series. It takes it in a different direction. There's a lot of philosophy in the story. And ultimately, I don't think the intrigue is ever resolved. In terms of what they were given to write about, this is the perfect Department S plot. Again, we've got Leslie Norman, later period director for the series, coming to the fore that wonderful opening set up the cinematic walk through Kensington Gardens as we follow Spencer Bodley when they're doing the body snatching Leslie Norman lets the camera do the work there are a handful of sequences in this without dialogue I just think it's an excellent episode
2: it is a wonderful moral dilemma isn't it many people have thought about would they want to stop the aging process and I thought one of the interesting things was those guys have all got to be basically either on drugs or being constantly sort of given psychological help because otherwise you would become schizophrenic, physically 20 Mm -hmm. and mentally age 60. I thought that was fascinating. It's still got some humour in it, hasn't it?
3: The ending is just beautiful because it's something we'll never know because we know that um, the Ian Cuthbertson character, Kendall, he was his own original guinea pig. In terms of the intrigue, it sends it through to, to an infinite loop because we will never bottom it out. We'll never understand how old Kendall actually is.
2: And there's a moment that's easy to miss where Jason King puts his cigar out in the face cream. And that almost tells you what he thinks. Forget this face cream and not aging. I'm going out with decadence. That, yeah. I think that's a lovely moment. The reason why the Spencer Bodley character, he hasn't sort of escaped notice totally was that he felt morally obliged to do something during World War II, didn't he? Again, it's almost that idea of he didn't want to completely cheat the system. He felt morally obliged to sort of help out in
1: a particular historical period. It's also one of the longest teasers. They don't seem to have a set length. There are some that are sort of just two or three minutes, but this one goes on for quite some time, which is mm. great, actually, because like mm. uh, you're saying about the whole setup for it, it just keeps going and going and going before you actually get into the theme. I think it's about like five minutes into the episode. I'm not yes. sure I ever totally
2: understood the red Mexican wheat dice thing. I think
1: it was just a focal
3: point, literally like the old sort of no, swinging think... wristwatch thing. Mm, yeah. But in terms of the teasers, the brief in the writer's document was three minutes. There are some that are sort of like this one, double that. And there are some that are sort of even less than half that.
1: Who Plays a Dummy? Now, that's an episode that we probably should mention because on the Blu-ray, it's actually uncut. And there was that whole issue that they found out when they were remastering it that some scenes with the mention of the word autocam were cut I'm lucky enough to have the original scripts mm-hmm. in my archive and there it is all the autocam stuff there so I'm really pleased that they found those pieces of missing episode and reinstated it because I think that was like 2 and a bit minutes cut from that so mm-hmm. great was to that, have that back
3: was that simply because of the dialogue mentions of the firm yeah what I love about that episode is autocam. It's a sort of thing that occurs throughout the series. Just in case you don't know where you are, every business that we come to <laughs> always puts their county or their country on the sign. You know, you've got autocam, sorry, not to be confused with autocam Madrid. And yes. I think that's just a wonderful bit of cheap set dressing. But on the thing about cuts in Teller Full when Rosemary Nichols comes up the stairs with Tronson, when she comes into the house before she gets past the note by denise buckley's character as they come up the stairs there's a complete audio cutout there and you see something trying to be said or being said Hmm. do we know if there are any problems with audio because there are quite a few scenes where the audio clips throughout the series
1: i'm not sure i know that uh, in that episode when edward brayshaw's character He looks down the stairs as they come into the front entrance. You can see a thin microphone being waved around at the bottom of the stairs. Someone obviously mucked up there. Talking of the sound, there's some really peculiar dubbing in this (laughs) series that I have to talk about because it seems that Robert Riety, who's obviously an actor but a very good voice artist, is used a lot, and there's David Graham who is a voice artist on things like Thunderbirds and some of the voices he used, it sounds like Gordon Tracy talking. I was quite surprised about how bad some of that dubbing was or whether it was down to the part of the actor or actress couldn't deliver the lines. There's one episode yeah. in particular, The Fish Out of Water, where some scenes it's Lee Montague talking himself yeah. and then he goes to talk to someone else and it's Robert Riotty. It's baffling why it's so like that.
3: Same episode, in a single scene, and they actually shoot the scene as a walkthrough, when Wolf Morris is in the lab talking to John Casaubon, He's in his own voice. Then when he comes in back into his own office to talk to the henchman, he's dubbed. And there's a little bit there, if you watch that closely as he leaves the um, laboratory, I think if you can lip read, I think John Casaubon says a very naughty word, which has been blanked out. But yes, the dubbing in Fish Out of Water is appalling. I I think, I suspect, it's Magda Konopka. I'm not sure she was hot stakes in the acting talent department, so I think this is why Lee Montague gets dubbed, because he's got so many scenes with her, and they had to overdub her.
2: Uh, What does Jason King say to her? What are you drinking, nectar? He thinks (laughs) she's a goddess.
1: It's going to make me watch some more stuff with her in to see, because I'm pretty sure she's dubbed in The Persuaders.
3: Philip Maddock told me when I asked him about his episode of The Champions, why on earth he was dubbed with the accent. And he said the problem was one of the players in the episode couldn't do the accent. Mm. So whilst he, he was doing it, they couldn't. And so they just looped it without him being asked to do
2: it. One of the things that does make Department S unique whether it's within the ITC stable or outside is sort of Jason King's fashion. It might be Marmite, but I, I would disagree with Robert Sellers. I think a lot of the time he's actually almost sort of creating a new style. There are elements of wild. There are elements of the sixties. Yes, a lot of the time it's over the top, but that's part of the charm. I think that's part of the
1: magic of the show. His fashion sense won him an award as the best dressed man in 1969 for the clothes he wore in department s so clearly it did have a huge impact
3: kate omara said in the documentary that it dates it but i think probably that is one of the small joys of the thing that you can slip back into that time and it is something distinctive
2: Have we mentioned at any point this evening that obviously the episode titles come before the main titles because that in itself sets it apart doesn't it i can't think of any other show that does that we get
3: the iconic s at the start every time that is a big thing and it literally is is a big thing because it fills the screen and as jazz has commented elsewhere the design of it is unique
1: That opening sting with that big red S, I mean, that's almost kind of like a, dare I say, a Jerry Anson Century 21 introductory sting, isn't it? Here, this Mm. is what you're going to get.
3: It's the thing that gets you out of the kitchen. No, department this is on
2: quick. Would
1: would that opening S, the red S, would that have been Chambers and Partners as well? Yeah. The thing is that the graphics of that, Chambers and Partners did all of the obviously opening and closing credits, but they did that as well a company that you know probably we should do a podcast on actually one day their work because they don't exist anymore but what a run they had of iconic title sequences with brilliant music to set graphics to but they have had the music to listen to
2: when they created the graphics
1: yes
3: it's interesting that something like that for so many years was sent outside why wouldn't they try to do it in-house Any ideas, Jess? just
1: I think really probably because it's cheaper. If you think about it, ITC, it wasn't like a production company itself. Like Department S was a Scoton production. ITC were the distributors, weren't they? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, Berman and Baker, they were making as New World. Berman and Spooner were making as Scoton. We have Pimlico Films for Danger Man. You know, we had all these little independent film companies. So it's just, you're a title-making company. Here's the work for this series.
2: I don't think there's any sense of Department S trying to be an Avengers. I mean, Peter Wingard and Patrick McNee don't really have much in common, do they? I think one of the sort of lazy comparisons is because clearly Annabelle Hurst and Tara King are physically reasonably similar in terms of sometimes hairdo, hair color, physique, although Annabelle Hurst Rosemary Nichols is sort of a slimmer version. People have probably picked up on things like that and the fact that they drive a similar car sometimes.
3: It is a, an unfair comparison. I mean, it, it's really got simply by the way it's set up from the writer's Bible. It's got its own identity. It's got its own style. Yes, I've said meeting Sir Curtis is like meeting Mother, and, but those are trivial comparisons, really. They both run on fantastical plots sometimes, but that's probably all that there is
2: and i think that's the era i mean you think back Mm -hmm. to the beginning of the 60s and some of the shows we've already looked at there's a lot of social realism in danger man in man of the world by the time we come to the late 60s the world has moved on tv has moved on and i don't mean evolved but just changed and you know most of those shows at the end of the 60s are drawing on some sort of magical realism. I mean, the champions, they've all got superpowers. Randall on Hot Cup, deceased, as a ghost helping someone investigate. Strange Report has some pretty weird moments. Mm. I think, it you know, that's probably the nature of where we were in 1968 and 1969. If you think about
1: it, television, cinema, whatever, is an art form... And it's not really different in ways to say the music industry and lots of the time the people who are working in these things, you know, they go to the same parties or whatever, or they meet up and they're all hanging out together. And there's bound to be things that is going on, say, like with the Summer of Love, psychedelic music that is affecting the way that some of the writers or the directors or the actors or whoever is working on this is going to pick up on it as well. You know, a lot of them, people were relatively young who were working on these things. So they're going to pick up on those things as well. It's not just music that everyone thinks is this psychedelic moment in 1967. It it was everything, wasn't it? It was fashion.
2: Look at those sort of, I think they're called amateur villains in the soup of the day. Mm. And, you know, it's very much a product of its time. We've got Carnaby Street, we've got these sort of hippie robbers mm-hmm. who are sort of quite trendy. We see sort of markets and it's any TV show is a product of its time. I also think colour has a part to play. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get that noir menace and all the subtle shadows as soon as you move into colour. Mm-hmm. It, it, it almost it changes the whole dynamic.
1: And Soup of the Day, you're right, it's got yeah. that Lord Kitchener's kind of uh, sort of military outfit, sort of King's Road thing. I mean, mm. to me, that's part of the fun, you know,
2: whether it's Strange Report or Department S, that sort of Portobello Road Cool or, mm. or, or Little Venice yeah. or whatever. And I just love the fact that particularly on these fabulous sort of Blu-ray, in the case of Department S, it really does show off that very late 60s vibe, mm-hmm. doesn't it?
1: Things I wanted to pick up on was, and this is a bit of a fun thing, is that Joel Fabiani seems to be always getting drugged in his drink Mm. or is susceptible to it, I should say. And also Jason King is always getting beaten up, not to the same level as say McGill in Man in the Suitcase, but he's always like getting knocked out here or he's getting knocked out there. I think there's a kind of in-joke there that some people are having.
3: I think Stuart Sullivan would give Hamelin Gint a run for his money. <laughs> he sort of makes the Minnesota Misfit look good. He's so susceptible to these things. That scene in Pied Piper, where he's pretending to be the missing resident that they never found, mm. the one who was sleeping in the hayloft or whatever it was, he is so OTT.
2: Both Jason King and Stuart Sullivan, they seem quite content at times to put Annabelle Hurst in very dangerous situations. Often she's almost sent off into the field and they'll be wondering, oh, we haven't heard from her or whatever. And there are times when they're almost sort of quite cavalier about her safety.
3: I think that cuts three ways. I think we get a lot of Jason disappearing and not turning up. And then, you know, Stuart and Mm. Annabelle will be standing in Interpol HQ saying, oh, he'll, he'll be back sometime, whatever. He's probably found a diversion in female form or something. I think that does happen to all of them. I never get the sense of Annabelle being that female in peril as we did with, say, the Baron when we had Sue Lloyd.
1: But just going back to the Jason King, where I mean, one of the things that I quite like is there always seems to be something. So, like in Pied Piper, he ends up wearing an eye patch. In Man in the Elegant Room, he's got his arm in a sling. Cellar Full of Silence, he's walking with a cane because he's got bruised bones, or he's in a it, plaster, isn't he? After yeah, he gets shot in one of them and them. he's hobbling around. You know, it's and mm-hmm. he's always getting duffed over. It's, That's the kind of humour, I suppose, in Department S, isn't it? Jason King's going to get knocked out this week. How's it going to be? Or he's going to have something like an iPad. I think it's nice in a way
2: because it counteracts his sort of inflated ego, the character's Mm. inflated ego. And again, you know, with the fact that some people are reading his book, some people can't stand his books. It's a nice counterbalance between the two.
3: It is nice that they do that, that they ground the character really, because he could have gone off on into the flights of fancy that he went off to in Jason King. The scene you mentioned, where he's having his photograph taken. What I do like about that is when Susan Fleetwood's photographer is meeting him toe to toe, basically. There's that lovely little joyous expression on Annabelle's face in the background because she's seeing the ego being deflated.
1: She has some great lines to sort of counteract him, you know. A cellar full of science where they are all in the car together in Stuart Sullivan's car and they drive by an oyster bar and he says, Oh, that's like one of the best oyster bars in London and I haven't eaten yet. And she's like, uh, Yeah, king of the freeloaders. I just thought that she's got some quite nice, sharp remarks back to him. So it's not always him that's getting the digs in, you know, it's quite yeah. fun
3: with this sort of as we've said earlier the self-referential stuff around his literary hero there's a lovely little one I can't remember which episode it is but she brings him totally down to earth she she just says this would never have happened to Mark Kane
1: There wasn't a US network sale for Department S. It went straight into syndication, a bit like Randall and Hopkirk. It's kind of sister series. But it was a success in Spain and Portugal and Germany and in Australia, where Peter Wingard went over to do a promotional trip for the series and got mobbed at the airport, which is quite a story. So it did get out there like a lot of the other ITC shows, but I think it probably wasn't quite as well remembered as a show, say, like The Baron, probably. You know, The Baron did get a network screening in America, albeit not all the episodes. I think it's in, in terms of its cultural influence though, it has had quite a big impact in in many ways. I mean, for a start, there was a new wave band in the late 70s and early 80s who took their name from the series, Department S, whose biggest hit was is Vic there, who had a number of minor hits and they were on stiff records. Probably the biggest one was the Jason King character, who was actually the inspiration for Austin Powers and even his groovy baby catchphrase came from Jason actually saying that in The Man from X. And obviously there was a Jason Wingard comic character that we talked about. And then they get all the things like Harry Enfield and all those people who are always sending up the ITC shows. I think they get it wrong because I think they're focusing on the character of Jason King when he's in the series Jason King and not Jason King in Department S. But that's another Mm -hmm. thing. And there's also a mention of Department S in the Tara King episode of The Avengers. So clearly... This is kind of a, has a more of a cultural reference in some cases than some of the other ITC shows.
3: To come back on your first point, the network screenings, it didn't have a network screening here. The mm. scheduling was really hit and miss. I failed to understand because they scheduled eight episodes between March and April, that we had a big blank, and then they brought it back in the September, which is high season, and back then, the autumn season within days of Randall and Hopkirk starting. So you had the bulk of Department S coming out with direct (laughs) competition with Randall and Hopkirk. The funny thing is, although we've heard the Peter story of the press launch, it also seems to have appeared without fanfare. There Mm. are no big launching articles. There are no major star interviews that I could find. It just sort of suddenly pops up and that's it. It joins the sort of middle ranks of for want of a better phrase, ITC fodder into the
1: schedules. But I think that's regional, though, isn't it? Because I'm just looking here. I've got some stuff here to hand. And it was shown from January 69 all the way through to September 69 Mm -hmm. on LWT. And that's weekly. I think that's the regional nature of ITV. But you're right, it didn't get a network screening. And it was patchy, I think. I think of the two...
3: For the actual original transmission, I think Randall and Hopkirk attracted far more attention and stuck with people's memories more. I think Department S probably only caught up when it was repeated.
2: But that's well, what... Randall and Hopkirk obviously has also been, well, for me, disastrously rebooted since then as well, hasn't it? To sort mm-hmm. of keep it in the public memory.
3: You can't imagine the possibility no. of a Department S reboot at all. Whatever you think, there's nobody that could replace the Jason King character.
1: Wingard is unique and those repeats you mentioned were interesting as well because unlike lots of the other ITC shows that got an 80s repeat like Randall and Hopkirk and the Baron and the Champions in the mid 80s on ITV Department S didn't get that very little tie-in merchandise there was a tv 21 comic strip there was a dutch adaptation of a comic strip german paperback super eight films theme single and sheet music but it's not one of these shows that got much in the way of merchandising the thing you were saying there about little
3: merchandising you've got no character cars or things the the character in it was jason king
1: okay, well, we can't do a podcast without having our usual clunkers section. So for me, I'm just going to say what I think of the clunkers. I'm not going to say too much about them, but you know we'll probably disagree because we don't always agree. But for me, Fish Out of Water, Soup of the Day and Mary Burnham are my biggest clunkers. One is down to bad dubbing. One is down to the appalling Irish window cleaner. And the other one I just felt didn't really go anywhere. There's mine. For me, the treasure of the Costa del
2: Sol is one of the worst. I Uh think it's the longest, tedious teaser I've ever seen with two appalling actors who (laughs) thankfully kill each other in in the teaser. And then we have that ridiculous sort of court jester Maxime character
1: who's drunk and is throwing money around in the cellar And that point about throwing around the money, it's actually real Monopoly money because I paused the (laughs) Blu-ray. You can see orange 100 Monopoly notes in that.
2: And the best thing about that episode, Isla Blair, she just disappears from the whole storyline. There are two or three of those sort of female guest characters who were integral to the plot. And then they're just sort of dropped in the final 15 or 20 minutes. That, to me, is, is fairly well up there, or down there. The one that you love, of course, with Kieran Moore.
3: Oh, Did Men Die Twice.
2: That is for a different reason. I find it deeply unpleasant. Mm-hmm. I think his character is also deeply unpleasant because his intention is really to do the same as Alan Lake did, except he's hoping that he'll win her over with Van Gogh, Beethoven, Machiavelli and Champagne before lunchtime. But he's Mm -hmm. basically he describes himself as a trapdoor spider he intends coming out tangling her in his web even though he's got his sort of latest girlfriend the barbara murray character waiting hoping outside i found some of that quite unpleasant
3: for me fish out of water because the awful dubbing shift that never was starts well and goes nowhere Soup of the Day has got sort of bits and pieces, but ultimately it's it's a weak episode to end on. I have to say, I've I've grown disillusioned with Trojan Tanker because it's a very, very basic plot. It doesn't make sense as to why the Veronica Bray character is there at all because Simon oates's character can just carry out the crime by himself. I'm not convinced by Charlie Crippen because that sort of peters out towards the end. The subplot isn't that brilliant.
2: One episode we haven't mentioned, which I do like, The Bones of Byron Blaine, but there's absolutely no need for the skeletons at all. They serve no purpose in the storyline. And at one point, clearly the writer must have felt that because he gets one of the characters to say, oh, well, of course, if the skeleton wasn't there, they'd want to do some sort of autopsy or he comes up with some ridiculous suggestion. I mean, the skeletons look great, but... They don't serve any purpose at all. But I do like that episode.
3: It's a little bit of fantastical whimsy, and, and dare I say it, it is possibly sort of avengers in concept, that bit. But I think it's a nice little episode. The thing was, they said, if they don't find a skeleton, they'll go searching for somebody.
2: It is a running light motif, isn't it? We've got lots of dummies, we have lots of skeletons, we have lots of masks. And actually, that's sort of part of the fun. I mean, Charlie Crippen, I agree with you, is not a good episode, but I do love the fact that Jason King carries on talking to him throughout the episode. Mm. It's Mm. sort of like a a weird, out-there part of an episode that isn't particularly memorable. But when
3: you look at that, you're literally looking at four, five, or six out of a run rate of 28. That's not bad.
1: And I also think the episodes, except for the probably Soup of the Day and Fish Out of Water, the last two, actually sort of halfway through begin to get really quite good the run improves definitely and it is a shame they didn't go to a second series and it went to the spin-off because Mm -hmm. i think actually once they'd done that first series a second series of department s would have been far far superior to Mm -hmm. a spin-off of jason king personally much as everyone loves the jason king character in department s he's far too ott in jason king and it just doesn't work with him on his own i think
2: that's why i said he's the whiskey that needs to be watered down he needs those other characters this is a thing
3: as we get into the latter period of series i think things start to change things start to develop i mean we've got the the thing where sometimes we'll lose jason king for most of an episode Mm. but the other two carry 25 minutes quite easily without him and I think, which makes it a bit of a shame that we didn't get that second series.
2: I think we've said, you know, there are a number of the ITC shows where one is left wanting more. I think Mm. we probably wanted more from Strange Report where there was only half a series. We wanted more from Zoo Gang because it was just getting into the groove. And obviously we know that that was never going to be possible. Men in a Suitcase, I'd have loved a second series. Maybe sometimes less is more. Yeah, but really, in the latter third of Department S, you can
3: feel things changing, characters are changing. I think they're getting more comfortable together, the three of them. The Stuart Sullivan character is definitely changing. He's veering away from the establishment, as we've seen in a few things. And directorially, the show is changing. Suddenly, we're getting sort of like Leslie Norman here, who's bringing a different dimension, not just the story he's telling the story in a cinematic fashion there's a feeling of momentum and then we sort of suddenly peter out with soup of the day which is a shame i thought it was starting to show a
1: little bit more development a little more promise i would agree with that as well i just think those last two soup of the day and fish out of water is a real it's a shame that it had to end with those two because for me they're both just like oh whereas I'm thinking that ones just before that were really great.
3: As I said at the start of this, I think it's the most effective three-under format for ITC. It's a show that should be judged as the sum of its parts and not just a vehicle for jason king there's, there's a heck of a lot more to it than that it's a show with its own identity if you haven't seen it catch up with it and and if you have it deserves a rewatch i think
2: yep uh, i'd agree with, with everything smudge has said there i do think the three characters are well balanced there's chemistry between them there's a nice sort of playful amount of conflict between the Annabelle Hearst character and the Jason King character, much of which is scripted, so obviously I don't know, I wasn't there at the time. I've heard there was conflict between the characters and that Wingard and, and Nichols didn't speak much but certainly there, you know, the hostility or, or conflict is playful as scripted and I think that works and it's fun. Nevertheless, I'm going to say that in the end, Peter Wingard is what makes this show. There is something magical, fun, playful. He's utterly unique.
1: Yeah, for me, I think this series works on a number of levels, right from the opening red Department S motif through to the, like I say, I think personally the best 60s, colour, opening titles and music. I think the hooks really work nine times out of 10. I think the combination of all three, as you've just said, they're very well balanced. I like the fact that actually Rosemary Nichols does get some things to do and goes out on assignments and is not just considered a spare part or there just to be the pretty girl. I think the added dimension of Having a black actor in Dennis Oliver Peters as the head of department is a real brave move and one that works particularly well, even if on some occasions he's only in the episode to sort of spoon feed Sullivan a few lines of info or whatever. I think that's great. I love the fact that the Mark Cain novels are sort of at times used as ideas for how the cases could be solved and sometimes they're pretty near the mark and sometimes they're not. But ultimately, I think it's actually it's an entertaining watch. You put these on, especially on the Blu-ray, they look fabulous. Okay, there are some flaws like we've talked about with back projection and things like that. But actually, you'll find that these are really well paced and they don't just drag anywhere. They've got a decent structure to them and they work well as a 50 minute TV show. You're going to be sat down and you're going to be entertained by them. And I think what more can you want from a series filmed in 1968 and broadcast in 1969, really? For me, it's great. I just need to say our usual thanks here. I want to say firstly thanks to Dan Box again for sharing that Writer's Guide Bible document with us. It's really fabulous to be able to see that. And it's a piece of production history that is reinforcing all the sort of theories that we had for many a year about the show. I need to thank Network, as always, for uh, allowing us to use clips and music. And a thanks to Umbrella, because obviously I did that Peter Wingard DVD commentary where you've heard a few clips there. But also thanks, especially to my co-hosts, who always bring more to the party than I ever do rodney marshall and al smudge thanks guys it's always a pleasure to talk to you and share these podcasts thank you thanks guys. it's been fun as usual so at the request of sir curtis soretzi we're off to help m9 to investigate a little case and we will return sometime in september or october depending on how well we get on so we'll see you again <coughs> you have been listening to itc entertain the world podcast Department S with Jazz Wiseman Rodney Marshall and Al Somage It was a Bitter and Twisted limited production for the morning after
4: Sorry, I'm just having a ticket to nowhere moment. What are we talking about?